Philippians chapter 1, we move along in our study of Philippians in this current sermon series, Going Public, Living Out Loud the Gospel of the Kingdom. And we're looking at verses 12 to 26 together today. If you would open that up in front of you and keep it open. We're going to read it together because I also have it on the screen for us so that we can read it together. Uh, some of you have been asking what translation this is on the screen. And uh, it is actually a, a new translation. It's one that is, I, I don't know how widely it is in press even yet. You can order it in hard copy. You will not find it on your Bible apps uh, yet. I know some have tried, and it's not new. It's, it's still too new. It's called the Kingdom New Testament, and it's, um, it's been translated by a biblical scholar by the name of Tom Wright, uh, also goes by N.T. Wright. Perhaps you've uh, seen that name or heard that name. Uh, perhaps you haven't, but... Uh, he is uh, just a brilliant gift to the church, um, and he has translated the New Testament uh, in, into this version, the Kingdom New Testament. So that's why I have it on the screen, because I know you won't find it on your Bible app, so we can read it together. But do keep your, your, your scripture open on your lap, too, because we won't have this particular slide in front of us all the time, and uh, as we do reference our passage uh, throughout the morning. Uh, before we read this together, and I, I just give you a chance to catch your breath and get ready to, to read with gusto, um, can I ask that you keep in prayer this week uh, the pastors in the Tri-City? You may know that I am active and involved with our Tri-City ministerial and have been for the last 10 years and serve in an executive capacity there. And we are, each year, we have an annual prayer retreat together. And we go away for a few days together to uh, Rivendell Retreat Center on Bowen Island. And, of course, with COVID, that got held up for uh, a couple years, as everything else did. But uh, we have resumed. And, in fact, I'm, I'm it, immediately following the service today, I'm making my way uh, there and uh, we'll be joining a cohort of pastors that will be heading that way. Would you keep us in prayer over these next few days, today until Tuesday? And uh, let's continue to pray for God's purposes in our Tri-City region. Um, and, and that is our, our heart as pastors together. God's purposes, His kingdom coming his will being done in our midst. And if I can invite your prayers, uh, joining with that. If you, if you happen to think of us, um, you know, if you're awakened in the middle of the night by a nightmare of Pastor David, uh, just remember to pray uh, for us. Uh, we would certainly appreciate that. Uh, as, as Paul has said uh, again and again throughout his writing, he, he so values the prayers of God's people, and, and I, I do as well, and we do as pastors. We truly do. So keep us in your prayers as uh, we gather in this way. Philippians 1, 12 to 26, our, our, our assignment this morning is this, apostolic reassurance. Apostolic reassurance. Would you say that with me? 
apostolic reassurance. Paul begins to bring some reassurance now in his letter. And in particular, he's going to talk about suffering. And he's going to teach us how we are to think about suffering ourselves. Read this together with me. Lift your voices nice and loud. Let's rattle the room here as we proclaim the Word of God. Now, my dear family, I want you to know that the things I've been through have actually helped the gospel on its way. You see, everybody in the Imperial Guard, and all the rest for that matter, have heard that I am here, chained up because of the Messiah, the King. My imprisonment has given new confidence to most of the Lord's family. They are now much more prepared to speak the word boldly and fearlessly. There are some, I should say, who are proclaiming the king because of envy and rivalry. But there are others who are doing it out of goodwill. These last are acting from love since they know that I'm in prison because of defending the gospel. But the others are announcing the king out of selfishness and jealousy. They are not acting from pure motives. They imagine that they will make more trouble for me in my captivity. So what? Only this. The king is being announced, whether people mean it or not. I'm happy to celebrate that. Yes, and I really am going to celebrate because I know that this will result in my rescue through your prayer and the support of the Spirit of King Jesus. I'm waiting eagerly and full of hope because nothing is going to put me to shame. I am going to be bold and outspoken now as always And the king is going to gain great reputation through my body, whether in life or in death. You see, for me to live means the Messiah. To die means to make a prophet. If it's to be living on in the flesh, that means fruitful work for me. Actually, I don't know which I would choose. I'm pulled both ways at once. I would really love to leave all this and be with the king. How many would say amen right there? We can just stop. I'd really like, how many, you have one of those days where you wait? I'd really like to leave all this and just be with the king, yeah? Am I the only one that has those kind of days? I do have those kind of days, believe it or not. Because that would be far better, hallelujah. But staying on here in the flesh is more vital for your sake. Since I've become convinced of this, I know that I will remain here and stay alongside all of you to help you to advance and rejoice in your faith so that the pride you take in King Jesus may overflow because of me when I come to visit you once again. We can feel the tension in Paul's heart in those last few statements he makes there. The pastoral tension he has between wanting to be in the presence of King Jesus 
but yet knowing it is important for him to continue to walk alongside the Philippians. Redemptive suffering. Would you say that with me? Redemptive suffering. Paul, as you know, is in prison. We just read it when he's writing this letter. And the Philippians are worried as well they might be. They're umbilically attached to Paul as the one who first brought them the good news of the gospel about Jesus and who modeled for them in his lifestyle, not least in his suffering, what it meant to follow this Jesus. They have heard that Paul is in prison and they have sent Epaphroditus with a gift of money for him. But Paul knows, presumably because Epaphroditus informed him, how anxious they are for him. And also about the whole business of where this extraordinary new movement is now going if Paul himself is in prison. What's going to happen now? So the concerns that the Philippians had were part of the larger issue which we see, not only here, but in many parts of the New Testament, and which resonates with us today as we ourselves live in a dangerous and ambiguous world, as even we were just praying a few moments ago, where we are nevertheless... As dangerous and as ambiguous as it, as it is, we are nevertheless, as the Philippians were, called to celebrate the Lordship of Jesus. Even in the midst of it, all the destruction, all the ambiguity, all the, the, the death, all the violence, all the prejudice, we are nevertheless called to celebrate the Lordship and the rule and reign of Christ Jesus that has come and is yet to come in its fullness. If we are the people of God, why is there still suffering? Why are there reversals as well as advances? And this, of course is a specifically Christian version of the larger, wider human awareness that the whole world is so full of signs of goodness and fruitfulness and hopeful possibilities. So why do things go so often so badly wrong? Popular culture in the Philippians' world and in ours give regular answers for these questions and for this dilemma. You know what people say. You've probably heard some of these statements yourself in your life and day-to-day -day living. Rise above it. Focus on the positives. Experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. Misfortunes bring their own blessings. One door shuts, another door opens. 
What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Let go and let God. You know these popular sayings. I won't say they're biblical sayings because many of them aren't. That doesn't make them bad sayings. And while these sayings are, are certainly very cliché, they do have some value and some merit and some help for some people some of the time. In the Philippian context that we're looking at, the ancient Stoic philosophers taught their followers the need to distinguish between the things that really mattered from the things that were trivial and to be ignored. And Paul has said something like this as well in verse 10 of our passage. Some troubles you can address. Some you can't. He calls the Philippians to be a people who approve what is excellent. Use discernment as we looked at last week together. Some troubles you can address. Some you can't. The, the Epicureans said that death was irrelevant since it was inevitable anyway. And there was nothing to be afraid of afterwards. Some said that things like prison or exile were great created opportunities for different kinds of virtue. These were some of the lines of thought that were prevailing in the Philippians' day and have even carried over in different degrees to our day. And Paul, watch what Paul does here. As he often does, Paul subversively and strategically echoes some aspects of the popular culture but he takes a big step beyond them by redirecting the popular conceptions into more explicitly Jewish and particularly Jesus-based channels by means of the dynamic concept of the gospel itself he does this and boy as he does that, it is a great example to you and to me, to us, as we seek to navigate our way through the often very ambiguous popular cultures of our times and places today. Now, when we talk about the gospel here in Philippians, we're talking about this whole Jesus movement that we are all a part of. Turn to somebody and say, you're a part of it. You're a part of it. In Christ Jesus, you are a part of it. If you're not in Christ Jesus as you sit here today, you are invited to be a part of it. You can be a part of it. You were meant to be a part of it. This gospel Jesus movement that we are all a part of. And that, for Paul, is what really matters. This Jesus movement, whether he lives or dies, 
in prison or set free, he says. These are irrelevant compared to what happens to the gospel, this whole movement itself. Do you see the priority he's giving to this here? These other things don't matter. Don't get divided over dumb stuff. As we often do, don't we? In the church. Hello? Any, anybody relate? Any witnesses in the room at all? It, 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 is the church I've been a part of different than the church you've been a part of? We get divided over dumb stuff. Paul says those things are irrelevant. What matters is the movement of Jesus and the Spirit of the Gospel moving forward in us and through us. Always. In all things. Whether in prison, whether in confinement, whether under the restrictions of a pandemic, or whether free and living and, in, and, and not having to deal with any of this. In all of these things, Paul says, our priority, what really matters is the advancement of the Gospel. Oh, that we would be as concerned about that as we are about some of the dumb stuff we get divided about. That's what really matters. So by way of stirring curiosity, what Paul does is he points away from me and my troubles. Because the Philippians are concerned for him. He's in prison. They've sent Epaphroditus with a monetary gift to say, hey, we're with you. We're supporting you. We're concerned. What's going to happen with all of this? And Paul what he does is he directs the attention away from himself, away from me and my troubles, toward the larger whole. Brothers and sisters, here's what really matters. What is the God of the Gospel up to in this? How is what is going on affected by that? You see, he gets them to begin to think about those kind of questions in the midst of such difficulties. What is God up to? As we walked through days of pandemic, as we go through our own personal and family difficulties now, as we face adversity in our lives, Paul says, here's a good question to be asking. What is God up to? Where is He in this? What is He saying? What is going to be affected for the sake of the Gospel in light of this? And now what Paul is doing here, and loved ones, it is a vital, it is a crucial lesson for all of us to understand what the culture around is saying, which is often a genuine and deep human response to the puzzles and challenges of life. But Paul says, not only consider that, but do it, think about it, through and within a different dimension. Filter it through a different lens. In the light of, yes, the Gospel itself. 
use the lens of the gospel to, to look and to understand and to interpret and to, to, to discern things. Not your own personal lens, not your own personal opinion, not your own personal anxieties and fears. Use the lens of the gospel, he says which gives you a wider perspective, a greater perspective. And so, for example, when the popular philosophies teach that suffering doesn't really matter, as I said a moment ago, the philosophers of the day in the Philippians' day were, were proclaiming when they teach things like that, when we hear our own versions of things like that today, suffering doesn't really matter, and you should rise above it. Paul, what Paul does is he insists that God the Creator has in Messiah overcome suffering. And he's overcome suffering by going through suffering himself and out the other side. And he has used it for good. And will do so again. In the meantime, beloved, please hear this this morning. Because some of you are in this place right now. In the meantime, he is with his people in the midst of suffering. He is with us. Where was God in the pandemic? He was right in it with us. He was suffering with us. He was struggling with us. Where is He in the midst of your difficulty, your adversity, your sickness, your struggle, your disease, your circumstances? He's right there in the midst of it with you. He's in the boat with you. And He's suffering with you. And he's struggling with you. In fact, one early Christian pastor and bishop and theologian and apologist, a father of the church, St. Irenaeus, taught us that God recapitulates his own suffering in the suffering of his people. In other words, loved one, he does not stand outside your suffering. He does not stand at a distance from your suffering. He suffers in your suffering. That's what Irenaeus was saying. He suffers with you. He suffers with me. And this is what Paul is getting at, as, as we will see as we get into chapter 3 of this letter. When, when he expresses his desire, listen to these words and understand them now in light of everything we've just looked at and said to this moment. He says in chapter 3 in verses 9 to 11, he talks about knowing Christ and becoming one with Christ and suffering with Christ in His sufferings. And so your suffering 
becomes redemptive. It has redemptive power. Because in your suffering, Christ recapitulates. He reenacts His with redemptive purpose in mind. All in an effort to point the eyes of our friends and neighbors, men and women, brothers and sisters, toward the cross, toward the good news gospel of Jesus Christ, who Himself suffered and went through suffering, and in going through suffering, overcame suffering. Hello? He didn't overcome suffering by avoiding it, by dodging it, or anything like that. Now, I'm not creating any kind of case here, nor are any of the church fathers, nor is Paul trying to create a case where we are to be some kind of sadistic kind of people that just get some sick love out of suffering. That's not what's being said here. But how many know that in this life we live, in this world we live in, we are going to experience suffering? Anybody here still? Are you living in the same world I'm living in? I'm feeling awfully alone up here all of a sudden. We are going to faith. What did Jesus say to His first disciples? In this world, you will know many troubles. But take heart. Because I have overcome. And how? He overcame through going through it himself. And now when we go through it, we don't go through it alone. He's in the midst of it with us. And we know, if we know nothing else, we know that we have a companion with us who has been through it and overcome it. And he walks with us, and so we too will go through and overcome. Hallelujah. Such solidarity you will not find in anyone else, in any other friend or relation. You will not find this kind of solidarity. Such solidarity in suffering. Something unheard of from the philosophers of the day. In Paul's day and in ours. In the Philippians' day and in our day. The classical approach to suffering came in the literary genre we call consolation. Lots of people wrote letters of condolence to those who had suffered Loss. We still do this today. Poignantly, I was in a meeting with uh, some pastors earlier this week, by way of example, and one of my colleagues had just experienced the death of a close family member. He was sharing with us. And we took time, as we should, to talk and listen consolingly to our friend, to our brother, and to pray with him. This was not unexpected. This senior family member of his had been sick for some time, but it is obviously a major moment in a family's life. 
as we know, even in our own families, even in those we have said farewell to in this family here over this past year. It's a major moment. And so the classic philosophical approach of consolation is about individuals, or at most, individuals and their immediate family. And that, that's all well and good, but for Paul, it becomes much larger than that. For Paul, it is a much larger thing concerning this whole strange new movement, this Jesus movement with its diverse and widespread membership. Not just among the Hebrew Jews, but the Gentiles as well. What is God doing? He's breaking out of all of our borders. All of our boundaries that we have set for Him. And Paul wants the Philippians and wants us to see that even in our suffering, there is something much larger going on that God is seeking to do. For Aristotle and the later philosophical traditions, virtue, virtue was more or less always an individual pursuit. But for Paul, pursuing virtue and righteousness is always to do with the larger community and the unique individuals within that. That is why from the earliest days of the church and prior in the life of the Hebrew people throughout the Older Testament, what do we see? We see such spiritual formation practices as the reading of Scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom books, the, the Proverbs, the Psalms, Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, they, the reading of them. And watch this. How did they read them? The reading was being done in community together. In fact, it had to be done that way for practical reasons, but it was done that way on purpose as well as far as God's purposes were concerned. It had to be done that way practically because not everyone had a copy of the Torah. They didn't have the, 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 the blessing that we have of our own personal Bibles. And so the reading of the Scriptures had to be done. It was an oral tradition. And it had to be done together in community. And so they learned together in community. And they studied the Scriptures together in community. And they grew together in community. So countercultural to our individualistic spirituality today. Yeah? If we're in a community somewhere like this and somewhere along the way something happens, someone rubs us the wrong way, we get ticked off and choose to be offended, what do we do? We leave. We go to find another community. And often that happens over and over and over again because we have to learn to live at a deeper dimension, to grow in a deeper dimension 
and that is in community together. When we sandpaper each other, God seeks to work through that to grow us in the things that he teaches us through his word. And it can only be done that way. We live in a day now where it's become so individualistic, we don't even seek community anymore, really. Our spirituality consists of our own forms of what we've, our own creations, and we just do it from home in our own time and in our own way. No community connection whatsoever. You might visit something online, listen to something online, and feel like, well, that's my connection to community. But really, it's not. We learn these things in community together. So faced with the challenges for Paul of his own imprisonment, And the Philippians' anxieties around that, what does Paul do? He here draws on Scripture. He draws on Job. He draws on the Psalms to support his conclusion that one way or another, Jesus the King will be exalted in and through it all. And he does it together in community with the Philippians. Paul doesn't imagine then that he is a passive victim in a puzzling world. That's not how he sees things or sees himself. A passive victim in a puzzling world needing to scratch around to find consolation for himself and his contemporaries. He's not struggling with some sort of martyr complex here. He wasn't one of those kind of people where that you met. How many of you have met them? They, they kind of carry this martyr complex. How you doing? Well, I'm going through some stuff. I'm just carrying my cross for Jesus. Hallelujah. And the whole world knows about it. That's not what Paul was, was, was about at all. And he was, he was not seeking to foster that at all in the Philippians. Some kind of passive victim mentality, puzzled by the world, needing to scratch around and find comfort and consolation for himself. He's not struggling with this kind of martyr complex. Rather, he portrays himself as an active agent and as an example of what the Messiah's Lordship means, what it looks like in practice, and hence what the Gospel itself means and looks like in practice. This present section that we're looking at and studying now, verses 12 to 26, sketches a circle of meaning marked out by one particular Greek word, which means... Advance. Say that with me. Advance. Say it. Advance. Or progress. It's in verse 12 and it's in verse 26.
In verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel. He's not saying, I want you to know, poor me. I'm going through these struggles. I want you to know that. No, I'm struggling. I'm suffering. Oh, I'm such a victim. No, he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance, to cause the Gospel to progress. Look at verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He's speaking language of advancement here. Progress, growth, development. What I'm going through is serving to advance the cause of Christ. It's a philosophical, technical term that he uses indicating that someone is making progress within their studies and practice of a particular philosophy. Paul takes that word that they all were familiar with and instead he, he transfigures it in the Gospel. He elevates it to a greater dimension. For Paul, it is the Gospel itself that is now making progress in verse 12. Don't be concerned about me, brothers and sisters. Whether I live or die matters not. The Gospel is being advanced. And it is now making progress in verse 12. And it is doing so through his particular circumstances. His trial, his imprisonment, his suffering. He says that this will then result in, verse 25, in the Philippian church themselves making joyful progress in their faith. So it becomes redemptive, not only for him, but for them and for the world. And this, he says, will be true whatever happens to himself, though he has an idea about that as we pick up on the, the hinting of it even in this passage today. He has an idea of what's going to happen with himself. So this consolation therefore occupies, this assurance occupies a whole different register, a whole different dimension from the standard pagan model. Paul contextualizes, he understands the whole understanding of consolation within his cultural context. And he says, you know, there's some goodness about this, but I want to take it to a whole new level in Christ. And he redeems it. And again, as usual, Paul is not only teaching them what to think, he's teaching them how to think. And in this case, the importance of allowing a solid theology to shape and to transfigure how they think about suffering. This past Monday, as you may know, was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. 
I can't think of a more appropriate modern model of what St. Paul is teaching here on suffering than Dr. King. In April of 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. published an account of his pilgrimage to nonviolence, it was titled, in the Christian Century Journal. He was apprehensive about doing so, but at the request of the editor, King wrote in particular of his own personal sufferings and how he thought about them. I find his words both challenging and comforting. This is just a, a segment of the article, but let me share it with you. He writes these words. Some of my personal sufferings over the last few years have also served to shape my thinking. I always hesitate to mention these experiences for fear of conveying the wrong impression. A person who constantly calls attention to his trials and sufferings is in danger of developing a martyr complex and of making others feel that he is consciously seeking sympathy. It is possible for one to be self-centered in his self-denial and self-righteous in his self-sacrifice. Whew, that's huge. Let me read that to you again. It is possible for one to be self-centered in his self-denial and self-righteous in his self-sacrifice. Turn to somebody and say, Selah. It means meditate. Think about that. We see that word in the Psalms a lot. So King says, I am always reluctant to refer to my personal sacrifices for those reasons, but I feel somewhat justified in mentioning them in this article because of the influence they have had on shaping my thinking. And remember, I told you, initially, King was not going to share his personal sufferings in this article, but the editor prodded him to do so. So he did it at the prodding of the editor. So he says, I feel somewhat justified in mentioning them in this article because of the influence they have had on shaping my thinking. We're talking about how to think about our suffering. Due to my involvement, King writes, in the struggle for the freedom of my people, I have known very few quiet days. Listen to his words here. I, I don't know. I don't think many of us have been where he was. Very few of us. I have known very few quiet days in the last few years. I have been arrested five times and put in Alabama jails. My home has been bombed twice. A day seldom passes that my family and I are not the recipients of threats of death. I have been the victim of a near-fatal stabbing. So in a real sense, I have been battered by the storms of persecution. 
I must admit that at times I have felt that I could no longer bear such a heavy burden and have been tempted to retreat to a more quiet and serene life. But every time such a temptation appeared, something came to strengthen and sustain my determination. I have learned now, and this is huge too, listen to this, I have learned now that the Master's burden is light precisely when we take His yoke upon us. Not our yoke, not the yoke of anyone else, but when we, in, in our struggle and in our suffering, we take His yoke upon us. My personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. And that's what Paul's talking about here in our passage. The gospel is advancing through my... He says, King says, I decided to follow the latter course. Not to react with bitterness, but to transform and transfigure my suffering into a creative force. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make of it a virtue. If only to save myself from bitterness... I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transform myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that an unearned suffering is redemptive. There are some who still find the cross a stumbling block and others consider it foolishness. But I am more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The suffering and agonizing moments through which I have passed over the last few years have also drawn me closer to God more than ever before. I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. So, beloved, our takeaway here this morning is that our suffering serves to, before a watching world, as the people of Christ, before a watching world, those who are, who, are, who are to live publicly before the watching world, going public, living the gospel of the kingdom, before a watching world, our suffering serves, one, to reveal the nature of God, in the reality of Christ Jesus and his solidarity in suffering with us. May the marks of Christ Jesus shine through us.
even in our suffering. And secondly, the second takeaway is to joyfully advance. Our suffering serve to joyfully advance and make progress of our faith and the good news gospel of King Jesus. And loved ones, that is what Paul is talking about here. And that is what Philippians is all about.